0: Welcome to the CEO.Digital show. My name is Craig McCartney.
1: And I'm Darcy Thompson-Fields.
0: And this is an exploration of technologies, trends and strategies straight from the C-suite.
1: You'll hear insights that will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders now and in the future. You can learn more and stay up to date at ceo.digital. What a great interview with Jason Fowler. I was reluctant to end it, I must say. But yeah, I think we should just briefly touch on our highlights before we get into the episode, of which there were many. Do you have a, a top one, Craig?
0: I do, Darcy. Jason was fantastic. Definitely could have spent a few hours uh, getting some insight from him and his experience. But I really, you know, talking about diversity and accessibility and how remote working has now um you know widened the net in terms of the resources that you know you can utilize as a company i thought was fascinating and then you know talking also about how their japanese offices adapting post COVID is also you know a really great piece of insight i can't wait to to hear what he has to say what about you darcy what did you think
1: yeah fantastic i mean for me, I, I thought that a really key insight was the shift from a focus, from an employee experience to digital experience, in the respect that every single employee touchpoint throughout every moment of their day is technology-based, and it affects you know your employee experience, and therefore HR needs to be involved in all of those technology decisions, and they need to be technologically aware.
0: Shall we listen to the rest of the episode
1: now? Yeah, let's get into it. Our guest this week is Jason Fowler of Fujitsu Global. Jason is a vice president of Fujitsu and combines the role of HR director for the UK and Ireland with that of head of HR for Fujitsu's European organization. With 20 years experience in the technology sector, Jason has seen firsthand the impact that digitalization has had and continues to have in disrupting organizations and their employees.
0: Jason, welcome to the CEO.Digital show. Nice to be here, Great. Hello, Darcy. So Jason, you weren't always working in technology or within HR for that matter. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your career so far and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, I'd be glad to, Craig. So um,
2: when I left university, I wasn't quite sure what it is I wanted to do. Um, And so I took a role in sales. So I was in sales and uh, recruitment sales, new business, trying to uh, be one of those people that calls up to ask if you've got any particular recruitment needs. So that was in the mid-late 90s. Just before y2k that was uh, an enjoyable experience i was in in that business for three and a half four years still connected to the technology sector as my major customers were either technology providers but certainly the resources i was providing were technologists and so so i've always had an association with the tech market moved from there out of that role and into one of um, my largest customers at the time which was eds um, major american outsource organization, spent a good few years with EDS as a service delivery manager, working with customers as varied as DWP and ABN AMRO, so financial services and central government. Um, enjoyed my time at EDS and then um, followed somebody that I'd worked for, an American chap by the name of Dave McGee. He came to work at what was then referred to as ICL Fujitsu. I came and joined Fujitsu, involved in workforce planning, service delivery management again, Um, And then segued back into recruitment, head of recruitment for Fujitsu in the UK, then took on an HR generalist BP role. Then I was involved in reshaping our HR organisation, implementing a shared services of Ulrich style model. And from there, I've taken on many different HR generalist roles. So I've been in the HR profession now about
0: 12, 13 years. And I think this is likely to be where I'll stay for the foreseeable future, at least. Thanks, Jason. And, you know, we've obviously had a chat to you beforehand, so we know a little bit about um, you and your role there, but, but for the benefit of our guests, um, I just wanted you to talk a little bit more about the particular role at uh, Fujitsu and just expand on some of that information. So I know there's sort of two parts to your role, uh, giving you a more strategic overview um, of more of the business, but can you tell us about how, how these two roles work?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, so my UK role, uh, which is probably where I spend the majority of my time. So I'm the HR director for our UK business, around 7,500 employees in the UK. Fujitsu provides um, a, a range of technology services, supporting critical nat- national infrastructure for UK government. We also support a host of major private sector organisations as well. And, and that's where I'm day-to-day involved in being part of our UK leadership team, driving our people's strategy, Uh, A big topic for our business uh, agenda is skills and capability development as we sort of develop the skills that we need in our people to support our customers now and into the future and leading my HR team here in the UK. In addition to that, I've got, I think it's 12 other countries that are part of my remit across Europe. In each of those, I have HR directors that are part of my team. So I work with them and we work on the uh, common strategy for people and organization across all of Europe. So much more operational and day-to-day involved in the UK. And then I get the pleasure of working with other HR directors across Europe. So I get that uh, aspect of of different cultures, working in different countries when we're allowed to travel, um, getting to experience HR as it looks outside of these borders.
1: Thanks, Jason. Certainly looking forward to that travel element returning, and I'm sure it'll be Uh, Much easier for you to connect with your team when you can do so in person. Uh, The past year has been a little tumultuous at times, to say the least. We're obviously, you know, coming up on pretty much a year since um, the UK went into its first lockdown. Um, What has Fujitsu done in response to the global disruption and a distributed workforce?
2: Yeah, well, you're right, Darcy. It's been an an extraordinary year. And and, um, whilst we never thought that it was going to happen... To imagine that it was going to go on for a year, I don't think anybody really had that sense this time last year. So I've been really proud of the way that Fujitsu has responded to the pandemic. Firstly, in the way that we've supported our customers. As I've mentioned, we support a lot of critical national infrastructure with uh, HMRC, with uh, um, MOD and others. And we kept some organizations being able to operate through this pandemic. And that's down to the commitment of those colleagues that... um, haven't been able to stay at home and work because their roles don't allow it. So we've been able to balance the 80% of our workforce that has moved to remote working with the 20% that have continued to have to be on site delivering service to our customers and upholding the reputation of our company. And so I'm really proud about how they've responded. Now, we made a major statement from our headquarters in Japan. As part of our work-life shift program, we've declared that all employees in Japan can continue to work from wherever they see fit post pandemic and we made that declaration really early on and that's a major statement for any organization but particularly one in japan where work styles still remain pretty traditional office presence matters uh, a great deal and so that was a and remains a, a real statement of intent we're starting from a different place over here in europe in that we had a significant amount of flexibility already inherent in the way that we work prior to the pandemic. But we've balanced that with um, a response to some of the critical issues that have come up during the course of the crisis. So we implemented 10 days full pay of carers leave to support those colleagues who were needing to juggle the challenges of caring for others, perhaps the homeschooling uh, issue that came about. We made uh, um, a big emphasis on how to adjust work patterns so that we weren't just working from a different location but in the same way we were doing work differently seeking to try to accommodate the fact that people were finding it much more challenging to to follow a traditional work pattern than uh, than perhaps they they would have done otherwise and we're also building into our future ways of working a lot of emphasis on what is it that we've learned i think through this sort of collective mass experiment we've been able to prove that we can do far more remotely than perhaps we ever thought was possible. And whilst we don't anticipate that we will remain as we are, in fact, surveys that we've done of our staff tell us only 4% of employees want to stay as they are, mm. it's around the same number that say they want to go back to how it was. So there's a massive expectation that we will hold on to some of the flexibility that we think we can uh, make good use of and be productive with post this pandemic. So we have moved from crisis response into future planning and we are intentionally trying to redesign our ways of working, redesign our role profiles, redesign the purpose of our physical space so that we can have our version of what we think that future way of working will be and will look like.
1: Well, that's an incredible shift, and I think that sentiment really echoes how a lot of businesses and employees are feeling kind of across the globe right now in regards to that shift in the way that we work and where we work and how we work. Is there a key lesson, particularly from the HR perspective, um, from, your, from your own experience of dealing with this crisis that you can share with our listeners?
2: Yes. Well, I think there are a few, actually. Uh, and And um, um, so, so one of which, we have got a lot of really positive feedback from our colleagues that we have communicated much more effectively and much more authentically with them. So we've lost this sense of needing to have corporate control over all of the messages that we might uh, issue to our colleagues. And we've just talked candidly, regularly, and openly, sometimes on topics that we really don't have the answer to. And then we've been able to solicit feedback from colleagues so that they've been able to help us shape quite what that response should be. We've also, I think, um, benefited from the fact that well-being and mental health has come right to the forefront of general discourse, and it's no longer an an HR-driven topic. Now, this was still, I think, quite often a pretty awkward conversation previously. Maybe some managers were comfortable discussing it. Many were not, not because they weren't interested, but because they were very concerned about saying the wrong thing. Now, mental health and well-being has become part of national discourse, international discourse, and I think that's a real positive. That's one of the things that we intend to hold on to so that we can have managers showing active interest, not only in the work that's being done by their teams, but how their teams actually are, and and showing that higher degree of empathy and recognising that their role is to try to help and understand and bring the best out of their team, and recognising that it may be that their team are dealing with issues that aren't related to work or might be being created by work. So that's a real positive that we intend to hold on to. Now, one of the other massive opportunities I think that exists as a result of this experience is a a chance to really accelerate the diversity and inclusion agenda. All organizations I think have been talking about how important this topic is to them over many years, but the statistics still tell us that there is a huge inequality a systemic inequality um, within most organizations um, in the UK, indeed in the Western world. One of the factors I think is that we had all been wedded to this pretty traditional commute work, commute employment model. Not everybody, but to a large extent. I think that the pandemic has shown us that we no longer need to be wedded to that traditional way of working. I'm really optimistic that if we and if other organizations think creatively about how work gets done differently, not just having been done from a different place, it opens up a huge number of new opportunities for them to attract much richer, diverse talent into their organization, but it also offers them the chance to allow their current employees to better fulfill their potential. As those people with differing responsibilities in life, perhaps they are carers we know that all too often childcare still falls in the majority of cases more to females than it does to males people with disabilities be those physical or invisible people from underrepresented groups that traditional work pattern that uh, centralization in major cities particularly london a removal of that post pandemic i think offers up a, a massive opportunity for diverse talent to fulfill its potential. And I think that just makes economic sense as well as being fundamentally the right thing for
0: organizations to do. And Jason, talking about that from your perspective and currently offer Fujitsu, rolling out any strategies or, or any particular processes to help increase uh, diversity within the workplace? Well, um, like most organizations, we have had
2: um, diversity and inclusion as a, a strategic priority for some years um, we've made some really good progress for example we reduced our gender pay gap by four percent last year um, the most significant reduction that we've made and we are above market um, for uh, a gender pay gap however it's still unacceptable that we have a gender pay gap we're not satisfied that we've managed to reduce it it still exists and therefore it's still a problem we're doing work we intend to be one of the first organizations to publish ethnicity pay gap, well ahead of it being a legal requirement for us to do so. So our principle is about being transparent uh, about the progress we've made and holding ourselves accountable for that progress. We've got a series of um, uh, networks that are uh, getting board level sponsorship within our UK organisation, covering all aspects of diversity. And we're also investing significantly on ensuring that we are accessible in that all of our systems, tools, we are accessible by design so that people with differing abilities and people who have different uh, levels of disability aren't held back because of the way a system has been designed, a tool has been designed um, with others in mind. So we do see this as um, an important priority for us. What we're going to do as a consequence of the experience we've had over this past 12 months is that firstly, we are reshaping and being very specific about what we see as the purpose for our physical space. That means it isn't the place that you go to for BAU work, to do your emails, to sit in a room on your own on telephone calls. So we're trying to disabuse colleagues of the notion that if you're working, you need to be in work. We also intend to make sure that as many of our roles as possible are location neutral. So that we don't re-establish this sense that you need to be in a particular place, perhaps the southeast of the UK, in order to take on the roles that might progress your career. We're committed to making sure that you can not only do your job remotely, but you can also have a successful career remotely. And you're not going to be disadvantaged with those whose preference is to return to the office.
0: That's really Positive, Jason, and, you know, we're only a small organization here at Chief Nation, and we've made small steps as well to, to try and increase um, diversity and, and, you know, open up um, the audience, but I can't imagine how, how difficult and um, how, you know, how long it must take for a large organization like Fujitsu to make a real positive impact, but, you know, it sounds like you guys are, are making really good inroads, so. Uh, well done to you all. So Jason, I want to just talk a little bit about the um, going back to mental health. It, it's quite a key topic, um, obviously for those in HR, but for everyone within an organization. And I, you know, I think even people that have never had any mental health issues or challenges before have seen over the year the that they are also susceptible to them. So it really has impacted everyone. What gains have you guys made in promoting mental health wellbeing, um, at Fujitsu and what are those are, are you doing now? And then what are you looking to retain out of those? So it's like a bit of a, a two pronged question.
2: Yes. Well, I agree with you that it's a, um, it, it's such an important point because it, it can affect so many of us at different po- points in our lives. And, uh, it's not predictable. Uh, and most importantly, at all, I think we of all, I think we've shifted from this notion that it is in some way a weakness. It's a it's a fallibility, uh, because it isn't. And so, what we have done during the course of this past 12 months, we've invested quite significantly in external partners to come help describe uh, how to support, describe uh, self-help. We of course have got uh, professional um, bodies that we work with that provide counselling where em- employees really do need that. We've invested as many have in mental health first aiders, but the most important step I think has just been the comfort with which this is now discussed day to day and at all levels of our organisation. So we've got leaders um, in the UK that are talking about their own challenges with mental health now and indeed in the past. We've got managers that are feeling more comfortable therefore being able to disclose that they themselves may have had or be having a personal challenge. What that, I think, breeds is a sense of empathy and understanding right across the organisation. And I think is so much more powerful than initiatives as good as they are in promoting mental health or providing support externally, fostering this sense of ease and comfort and a sense of safety that you can disclose those issues and that you will feel supported. And that, frankly, your manager is interested. One of the things that I'm most pleased with in terms of the feedback we get from our colleagues in our survey is that the score on feeling cared for has increased dramatically over this past 12 months. Now, we might expect a little bit of that because there's a sort of galvanizing effect of the um, all facing common adversity in this this crisis, but we've held on to that. So I think a lot of organizations have started to see that wane a tad as we've reached the fatigue stage, we may well come past that. But we've held on to that. And I'm pleased that we aren't we aren't getting a sense that this is a sort of parent-child relationship with our employees. But there is a sense that they feel cared for by their manager, by the organization. And, and we don't forget as well that managers, they themselves are employees. I often hear uh, HR people talking about um, the role of managers as though managers themselves aren't managed. Uh, or as though managers themselves aren't experiencing life as an employee. You know, I'm a manager and I'm still an employee and the things that affect employees, they also affect me. So we th- that's the thing I'm I'm most pleased with. And that's the thing we want to hold on to. Because what I, I think would be uh, a real loss is if we move out of the pandemic and the only time we were comfortable about talking about mental health was when it was something that we could all relate to. What I would like is that we hold on to this notion that it is a constant topic of discussion. We hold on to those high levels of empathy. We hold on to that sense that we care for each other. That I think would be the way that we sustain something much more powerful than any individual uh, intervention or any individual project.
1: I think, yeah, that's so important and so incredible that you're receiving that feedback as well. And kind of on that topic of employee wellbeing, and also you mentioned earlier kind of opening up accessibility through a distributed workforce. There is the issue that comes with working from home that I think a lot of people are facing, which is that sort of separation of your work life from your home life and finding that balance when you can be accessible at any time from anywhere. Is that something that you're tackling at Fujitsu as well?
2: So this is a it's a real issue. So we, we've got uh, I'll describe some of the things that we're trying but I'm not going to say that we've cracked this because we haven't. And I personally haven't cracked it either. Yeah, <laughs> That temptation or that sense of expectation, perhaps that you're always on and it isn't coming from anybody else. Nobody's making me feel that way, but it, but it's, it's something within me and this, the room that I'm in now um, is in my house. So, you know, I walk past and come into this room at the weekend and in the evenings. So, so to, to, to create that separation It takes a lot of discipline, and it's a very difficult thing to do. One of the ways that we have sought to try to break this is to put a lot of emphasis on um, create your own working pattern so that it suits you, suits your role, allows you to do the other things that you've got responsibilities for in life. Now, we've got some colleagues, maybe some people who are neurodiverse, who prefer to work in the small hours. Mm. You know, much of what it is that we do doesn't require immediate interaction. It can be done. It can be left on teams. It can be picked up, dealt with, then passed back. It doesn't It doesn't need to be simultaneous. So we've been encouraging that flexibility in work pattern. Now, there's a downside to that as well, though, because the flexibility in work pattern does mean that messages can be coming in from colleagues who are working in a way that suits them at times that don't suit you yeah so we've got to put a lot of emphasis on this notion that just because the message comes in it doesn't need to be dealt with there and then and that's the part that we have had still some uh, difficulty in cracking and there's just one one thing i would share we've, we've been we've talked about having days where you know meetings we found that, that you know not, not that practical um we have had uh, some very practical things like um, when you're attending a meeting, the, the invite will declare whether it's necessary to be on screen or not. Because if it isn't, then we've had people who go out and walk during the course of that meeting. You don't need to be trapped in the same physical space. Um, and then the, the the thing that has had a major impact, and, and I really didn't expect that something so simple would be so received so positively, is we have a work your way hour, once per week. And it Books the time in your calendar, and the only instruction is you must do something that isn't related to work. And I, and I was concerned, it's only an hour, and it's, uh, but the, the legitimacy of it appearing in the calendar and the instruction to do something that isn't work has fostered this sort of community where people are going on um, joint walks, even though they're not physically together. Uh, people are posting in their pictures onto our Yammer sites as to, quite what they're doing with their work your way hour. And, and this, this sense of uh, freedom just for that 60 minutes per week has had a had had real positive impact. So I think it's sometimes the very simple things that can
0: have a, uh,
2: much more of a, an impact on colleagues than perhaps we
0: realize. What was the, the thing that you worked on then last week or the week before in your 60 minutes? Yeah, well,
2: <laughs> so what I do uh, is I like to run. And so ordinarily, I've been out this morning, I would go out quite early. I have very young children, so um, a, a lie-in for me now, you know, if I reach 7 a.m., that you know, that that feels uh, as, as though I've sort of slept half the day away. Uh, so ordinarily, I would get up before the kids are up, um, and I would go for a run, as I did this morning. But um, on, on the work-your-way hour, I just see that as a really convenient hour to get out, run 10K, back, change, showered, ready to the next meeting, feeling much more refreshed.
0: Nice. And... Positive benefits for the body and the mind as well. And uh, having the space without your kids you in there
2: as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Definitely. Well, yeah, I think I can totally see how that would be effective as well. Like you said, uh, there's that pressure, that kind of self governance to stay online and accessible. So, enforcing that hour in someone's calendar is going to kind of relieve any of that anxiety and make them feel kind of freed up to, to run those activities. That sounds great. And um, moving on to a little bit uh, around the sort of technology and, and innovation side, um, you know, some of the previous uh, interviews and episodes that we've had on the co.digital show, we've heard that, you know, particularly HR um, in certain organizations has felt they've kind of had to stick to outdated paper-based processes, you know, even when they're working remotely, you know, is this the kind of legacy thinking we're still seeing in HR or do you think it's progressed in terms of the technologies that HR function uses to do its jobs?
2: Well, so Darcy, I think the relationship between HR and technology uh, is an issue that HR needs to talk about and address. Um, uh for, for too long, I think the HR profession has been uncomfortable with technology. It's sort of outsourced or abdicated the responsibility for technology decisions to internal IT or to suppliers or to someone else. I think HR needs to grab hold of that agenda much more forcefully. And the reason I say that is, A, because of the, some of the points that you make there. HR needs to modernize its own processes. But HR has talked for a number of years now, quite rightly, about employee experience and the importance of considering all that hr does all that your organization does in the context of the employee experience i think that's right but i think that's now advanced and this past year has shown us that the employee experience really is shaped by the digital experience so hr needs to assume responsibility for the dx challenge because that is ex and i don't see that hr does that often enough so what hr needs to do i think is examine itself really carefully to assess whether or not they really are considering their own offers, their services, the way they interact with their organization from the perspective of DX. But they also need to have a much closer relationship with internal IT with other leadership uh, uh, across the business as well as the functions so that there is a joined up technology strategy That looks not only at the processes or the functionality that any particular department or business might need, but is focused very keenly on how does this all connect together to give us the EX, the DX through EX experience that our employees really need. That allow us to be productive, to allow us to be joined up end to end as an organization and to make us the sort of organization that getting things done is the easy part. So that, that, I think, is an area that HR really could get on the front foot on. And this past 12 months have shown us more than ever that that's needed now.
1: And is this, you know, particularly just to do with employee experience related technologies or does it stretch kind of more widely than that? As, you know, we've kind of touched on, you know, employees every Bit of technology they use shapes their experience as employees.
2: Yeah, well, so I think it's the latter. Um, now, it wasn't that long ago. I can we talked at the start about wh- where I began my career. Um, unfortunately, that was quite a while ago. But it it, it is. Uh, um, it was true to say, not that long ago, that the best technology you ever encountered was that which you used at work. Mm. More often than not, it's now the worst. Uh, but it doesn't need to be. And I just think there is still quite a lot of outdated thinking, not just in HR but across an organisation, to think much more carefully about what the end offer is to their employees. Their employees who are used to technology um, as a consumer that is massively better than the general experience of technology as an employee. And and I think there's proper too too much um, uh, too much thinking that is technology considers technology to be ring-fenced in the way that it once was whereas i now look look at there's no longer a technology department which department isn't technology which organization isn't a technology organization now Mm. if you're still thinking that technology and it is the responsibility of your cio or internal it and only theirs then i recommend that you reconsider that point of view because tech is everything And those organizations that grasp it, even if they don't think they're in the tech industry, they are. I've talked to banks that are um, declaring themselves as technology companies with balance sheets. So this this is really the time for organizations to think much more keenly about what's the role of tech and what's our offer. How easy is it for us to be effective as an organization because of the tools and technology we're giving our employees to do their work? That, I think, is the means of competitive advantage. That, I think, is the means of breaking this um, challenge of productivity more than anything else that's on the agenda at the moment.
0: Yeah, the lines certainly are blurring between departments and how we, we use and consume technology, that is for sure. And talking about technology, looking at the HR function, um, you know, a lot of technology, a lot of the benefits that come with technology are around automation. And automating uh, processes. How do you think automation can feed into the HR function? And are you are you doing anything uh, currently which would demonstrate or highlight this?
2: Well, so um, uh, often I find it. I find a uh, it's it's a it's a strange sense when we're talking about automation because there's a lot of people talk about automation and the efficiencies that it can bring, and of course, efficiencies in that context often feels like a euphemism for headcount reduction. Uh, and, and in effect, we've got people saying automation allows us to do the work with less people. And I always wonder, at what point do you think this catches up with you as well? Or at what point do you think this catches up with your the next generation? So I see automation as an opportunity slightly differently. When I think of it from in the context, uh, Craig, of your question uh, for, for within HR, firstly, HR needs to be, back to my previous point, offering a service that feels relevant, modern, and you need to be easy to do business with. Your internal customers need to value what it is that you provide, and it needs to be easy to access. So modernization of what it is you do through use of technology, I think, is, if it's not on the HR agenda, it really ought to be. may need you to change the skills and capabilities you have in your function in order to do that, but I think you really need to get on the front foot with that. Now, what does automation offer by way of opportunity well you can go two ways firstly you can go the way of it just offers us the opportunity to reduce cost reduce headcount and uh, uh, and that and that's the way to go and in part yes of course that, that that is that's where many of the business cases lie but most people doing the sort of work that is subject to the automata- automation technology that's available today probably aren't finding their roles the most rewarding they're probably capable of doing more And what I think is the real opportunity is making use of automation to free up the capability that you have within your department, within your organization, to do the things you aren't getting to. All organizations have a to-do list that they're not getting to, that requires critical thinking, that requires the full intellect, the full discretionary effort of the people they have in their teams, in their organization, to really get those things done. But they're not able to get to them because they're hamstrung by the day-to-day BAU, the operational admin that could be done through automation. That I think is the real opportunity. That's where you create value that sustains, that gives competitive advantage. Whereas cost saving generally is a one-off, a, um, a sugar rush uh, that doesn't sustain. So, so I'd recommend organisations see it a little differently. Uh, but again, HR often I think is absent from those conversations until such time as you need to bring HR in to undertake the restructure that results as a consequence of the automation. Uh, that's been implemented it's too late in the day
0: yeah and we work a lot with technology vendors and we we run a lot of events where we you know engage with a very senior audience and hr is becoming a part of that conversation and it's so important for them to be part of that conversation because you know your employees at the end of the day are you know your most valuable assets so just looking at Again, so we, we're moving on now and talking, you know, we spoke about processes, a little bit about HR and people, and how important is it for leaders to implement these changes and how would they take ownership of, of that and ensuring that their teams get on board? So you've got the tech, you know, how do we get the people to to use the tech and, and to make it part of their day-to-day? Yes. Well, well I, yeah, this
2: there's, there's a, a great topic because um, how many tech investments – Um, have a phenomenal business case on PowerPoint, but uh, seldom do the um, benefits turn up in reality. That, I think, is part because it's not considered joined up end-to-end. You've got departmental proposals that are being considered independently of each other. But now when we think about connecting that to the post-pandemic ways of working, the role of leadership uh, is just essential. What I mean is that Each organization, in my view, has to grab and shape their version of what the future way of working actually is, because it might not have felt it, but we've been in the easy part. Where we've been in a situation where we've been told you can't work from home, you must put all of your um, employees um, at home or in certain circumstances, furlough or, or whatever that might be. It's a binary choice. We're approaching the point where choice becomes yours to make again. And I think each organization needs to think about what's right for us in our sector, but the way that we work, what do we want our version, our culture to be in respect of post-pandemic ways of working? Because you can have the very best concept, but if it isn't brought to life by the things that your leaders do, it'll fall apart like your house of cards because what leaders do is so much more disproportionately impactful than what they say having a fantastic concept describing it as this brilliant opportunity that's available to all employees but then them seeing if anybody wants to interact with that that leader they'll be at head office five days a week early till late what you do as a leader gets emulated across your organization so I think this is a topic that HR can and should lead on but it's one they can't do alone they need the rest of the leadership team bought into. What's our version? And I keep saying that because it's so important. Because it's very easy to talk about, well, we'll just have a hybrid. Well, maybe you will. But what's your version of that? And, and, and are you putting any structure around that? And, and are you changing policies around that? Are you changing your physical space as a consequence of that? Are you putting in place investments in technology that allow productive ways of working post-pandemic rather than just functional ways of working? So putting concentrated effort into that plan, I think, is a business-critical topic. I think then that that plan, once agreed, needs to be lived and breathed, embodied in all that the leadership team does. So that means those leaders reflecting carefully on not what do I think this means for my organization and what do I think this means for the people I employ, what's it going to mean to me and how am I going to be different? And whilst my preference might be to be back in the office, I like being around my people and I like the energy and they need to think differently and act differently, else it won't be different. And that, I think, is the challenge that's in front of all organisations. As I say, HR can and should lead, but HR this can't be outsourced to HR as they come back and tell us the new policy decisions.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I think it's going to be so integral, as you said, to have leadership and kind of the wider team and almost that that brand actually embody the employee experience that you want to give your
2: employees. Just on that, um, I think what you just said there is so important that the opportunity. Sometimes you can sort of get sucked into thinking about, well, what's our policy and what should it be for us? But if you step back as a business leader or an HR leader and you think, if we were the organization that cracked it, if we were the organization that was thought of in the marketplace as the type of employer that you could turn up, deliver really purposeful work with the skills that you've got, they also have a culture where you can learn and grow and develop new capabilities and experiences, but you're able to do all of that whilst balancing those other responsibilities and interests that you've got in life and that you could not only do your job remotely, you could have a career remotely. Imagine being the type of organisation that had that offer to the market. Who wouldn't want to come and work for you?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, you've nailed it. That's that's exactly, I think, you know, what, what individuals are looking for. Um, also, especially with the the kind of younger generations as well as, you know, we have the kind of the younger millennial workforce and then also Gen Z coming up as well. I think they're going to look for that experience more and more. Um, what does this mean, you know, in particular for the HR and IT relationship? Because we talked a bit earlier about how there is such a blurring across functions and across lines because actually technology is part of not only every company in every industry, but it's also integral for, for every function. But, you know, a lot of businesses, especially larger businesses working on more traditional silos, a lot of the purchasing power around technology sits with the it team so you know should there be a more integrated partnership between hr and it and how do you achieve that
2: so i think that's exactly what there needs to be it needs to be integrated it needs to be a partnership there need to be close personal uh, uh, professional relationships between the head of it the head of hr but then extending down through their teams as well uh how to achieve it well firstly i think hr needs to get more credible in talking technology. Mm. That doesn't mean HR needs to become deep technologists, but what they at least need is comfort talking in basic terms about what technology is, about infrastructure, about cloud, about applications, um, about how all of that sits together. This is where I think there are sensible investments that HR can make in creating new capabilities, in bringing people into the function, either from outside your organization or from at least outside of the function, that are comfortable with technology but also comfortable with data and use of data and data structure mm-hmm. and you bring that capability into the function i think it starts to enhance a your ability to do the things that you do you're trying to do today but what it also does is raises your credibility across the organization and raises your credibility with departments such as internal it once you've got a a trusting relationship between departments based on credibility, I think I think you're in a strong place to uh, establish that uh, integrated partnership that you've mentioned, Darcy, but, but it's really important to do so.
1: Definitely. And is there anyone else that we haven't touched on, any particular departments that should be a focus for HR partnership when it comes to getting employee experience and employee culture right?
2: Well, the critical one beyond IT, of course, would be finance. Mm. So um, getting to help finance colleagues, some see it already, you know, some very um, uh, capable strategic uh, CFOs, I've worked with some of them here at Fujitsu, who um, see value, not just cost. Uh, but HR, again, has to ask the, the credibility question. I think HR needs to be commercially competent and not seen as an organization that wants to base investment decisions based on hope or goodwill or nice-to-haves.
1: Yeah. Because when I
2: talk about things like diversity and inclusion, that I think is the right thing to do. I think it's the right thing to do, but it's also the right commercial thing to do. Uh, and and then and then you bring evidence, but also you bring data. And this is where a different capability, a different skill set within the HR function can really enhance the credibility and profile of, of HR and and allow HR to be much more integral to wider business decisions rather than those that are just traditionally understood as well. This is a people topic. We need HR in the
0: room. Great. Thank you, Jason. Very, very useful. And I'm just looking at the time. It goes so quickly. We always wish we had more time uh, with people like yourself. Um, So much insight and probably could talk for hours about this particular topic. It is. It looks like it's an exciting time to be in HR and, um, you know, with, the way the world's changing, and and what's next after COVID, um, it's certainly going to bring lots of opportunity and and challenges, and I'm sure make your day to day life very interesting indeed. And uh, is there a sort of um on the horizon? There's this new, new sort of chief role in HR that's appearing. The CH, mm. uh, well, yeah, CH, uh, CH, CHRO, um, if you will. Um, that's quite a new title, and is that is that something that you you'd be looking to? achieve uh, in your career at one point frankly speaking Craig,
2: no it doesn't really trouble (laughs) i sometimes worry it's a a sort of rebrand but to what end so so what i i think um the, the function is much better served with is concentrating on on the outcome and the impact that it's having on the people that work for your organization but also on the business outcomes for your organization i think hr being instrumental in those going well beyond the boundaries of what might be traditionally perceived as people or hr topics i think that becomes my measure of whether I'm getting something rewarding from the role and whether I'm contributing something meaningfully and uh, with a few exceptions uh they can call me whatever they like uh, but i uh, but I'm not a um not that focused on on title and as we saw right at the start my title currently needs a uh, uh, reducing I, I need to I need to cut that down I think far, far too many work to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to even fit on a business card
1: thanks so much Jason for all these incredible insights uh, we're going to move into our sort of speed fire round that we like to close every podcast with some more light-hearted questions we'll just throw some quick questions at you and you can shoot some short answers back at us so I'm going to kick off and ask you to describe in a couple of words your leadership style
2: Ah, right. Okay. There's always a risk. I describe what I want it to be rather than what it is. Uh, um, So I think my leadership style is, um, uh, it's supportive, it's empathetic. um, I think it's high energy, but it wants to get things done.
0: And what do you say you do versus what your boss thinks you do? And then how would your kids describe what you do? uh, So I think, I think
2: I make our company better. I think I make our company better for our people. I think I make our company better uh, for our customers as well. What would my boss say? They might agree with, with some of that, I think. I think they'd be generally positive about that. And then what would my kids say? Well, my kids say I do phone calls. Um, my kids say I do phone calls and emails. And um, they may be the most accurate of the three of us in this answer. Phone calls that are making
0: your, your company better. Oh, exactly, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: Uh, and beneficial emails too, I'm sure. <laughs> so outside of work, uh, I'm sure you're accessing technology personally all the time, but what is your technology guilty pleasure?
2: I can't get enough of any apps that tell me about health and um, or things like running performance, um, so I have Strava, but I always I pay the upgrade to to see how fast I went on a particular kilometer split or going uphill or what my heart rate was. Um, so uh, how much I've slept. Um, I'm not sure whether looking at all those apps makes me actually uh, less healthy, uh, but um, but I can't get enough of them. So anything at all to do with health and physical performance, I uh, I get focused on.
1: Do you have a favorite?
2: But probably Strava. It does give you a lot of of stuff that you can construe a meaning from that really isn't there. So I do enjoy that. Are you training for anything at the moment? No, I I was before lockdown. Um, So um, I I had a half marathon book that was called off um, the morning of the event because it was around this time last year. And so, of course, there's been no, I think there's a few competitions have, have, uh, have been open, but with such restrictions, I haven't entered them. So, no, just to um, just to get out of the house.
0: Yeah, of course. I've just signed up to Strava myself, and it is very, very addictive. So I don't blame you. It's uh, crazy how competitive it can make you in your own little sort of virtual slash, you know, running world. But I find them extremely useful. Although my Fitbit is keeps on removing about seven hundred meters at the end of my journey,
1: sure, and it's it's throwing my (laughs) time off. I'm not happy about it,
0: but yeah, right.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jason. I think there's been some really incredible insights, not just for HR leaders, but for the wider leadership team. As you said, these decisions need to kind of permeate every section of every business. So yeah, Jason Fowler, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Listeners, if you enjoyed this conversation, then please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Thanks for joining us for the co.digital show.
0: Thank you, Jason.